It's time to think about the Bible like you never have before. This is Christian Questions. After the podcast, check out everything ChristianQuestions.com has to offer. Also see our weekly video series releases at ChristianQuestions.com slash YouTube. Now, here's your hosts, Rick and Jonathan. Mahatma Gandhi once said, "Aim always aim to complete harmony, act complete harmony of thought and word and deed. Always aim at purifying your thoughts and everything will be well. I'm Rick, and this is not your typical Christian commentary as we look at Bible-related topics from a different perspective. I'm Jonathan. This podcast centers on godly principles, family values, and honest dialogue in a politically free zone. Folks, talk to us anytime at ChristianQuestions.com or our social media channels. Download some after-episode extras, such as our thorough CQ Rewind show notes and our bonus Bible study questions available on our individual episode pages. And look for new videos for all ages every week at ChristianQuestions.com slash YouTube. So Jonathan, what are we talking about for today? Well, we're in our fourth week of our exclusive Contradictions podcast series. This week's episode, Did the Apostle Paul Contradict Jesus? And we have two theme texts. The first, Matthew 5, verse 17. Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. And the second, Romans 10, verse 4. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Okay, so did the Apostle Paul contradict Jesus? Folks, look, there's no denying that the New Testament, and for that matter, the entire Bible, is all about Jesus. His sacrifice for humanity is proclaimed from Genesis to Revelation. He is the key to the gospel. Having said this, the life and writings of the Apostle Paul dominate much of the New Testament. His experiences and teachings are pronounced, and in the eyes of many, they go too far. Critics see the Apostle Paul as a combatant against the gospel of the kingdom that Jesus taught. The basis for their criticism is the way Jesus reflected the role of the Jewish law and the way that Paul essentially wrote it off. So how do we manage this? Was Paul at odds with the core values and teachings of Jesus? Well, coming up in today's podcast, Look, most of us simply believe that Paul was as devoted a follower of Jesus as there could ever have been. For critics, belief in the Jewish law is a major sticking point. In segment one, we reveal why the critics say what they say. And in segments two and three, we begin to look at the different aspects of the law for clues as to who's right. For some, Paul seems to be an enemy of the state. But what about the apostle Peter? In segments four and five, we look at his role in the confusion that so many have and finally conclude the matter in a scriptural basis. So that's what we're looking to do. And Jonathan, it's a contradiction program, so we had to bring Julie back because that's just, you know, Julie, we just like to have you here for these things. <laughs> because I'm contradictory. Oh, that's not good. No, no she's a big help is what she is. That's right. Aww, Julie, welcome you. back. We really appreciate your being here. Thank you. I'm very blessed to be here. But, you know, before we get started, I just wanted to say hi to one of our youngest listeners, seven-year-old Ben. Ben's mom, Emily, wrote to us last week asking how Neanderthals fit into the creation account. And they've been listeners for about a year. And she says, Ben hangs on your every word, Rick and Jonathan. Well, good job, Ben. Yeah. <laughs> Keep it so, up, buddy. 
So we let her know that there are CQ Kids videos for them to watch together on our website and on our YouTube channel, christianquestions.com slash YouTube. And thank everybody for listening, especially uh, Ben, and our and writing for us, writing to us with your encouragement. And listeners can write us at inspiration at christianquestions.com. So as Jonathan said, this is the last of our four-part series on the Apostle Paul. We encourage our listeners to check out our previous episodes, 1111, 1112, and 1113, where we examine many criticisms about Paul. And we've had some really good studies on this. We've had to dig deep into his circumstances of his life and his conversion. Some of the most adamant criticism we have found is that people compare the teachings of Jesus with Paul's, and sometimes uh, Paul introduces, they say, subtle changes, or that his teachings are at odds with our master's teachings. Some warn we should stop reading any of Paul's writings as they're from a false teacher. So it's such serious claims, we have no choice but to take an honest, unbiased look to make sure our faith is on solid ground. All right. So, Jonathan, as we approach this particular podcast uh, about Paul and Jesus, what's our premise? Well, we believe that Paul was not only in harmony with Jesus regarding the role of the Jewish law uh, plays in Christianity. We believe in his writings that they embodied the essence of the gospel of Jesus. Okay. That's what we believe, and that's how we're going to approach this particular um, subject matter. So, you know, when we ask the question, contradiction or needing a clear explanation, are Jesus and Paul at odds regarding the Jewish law? So, Jonathan and Julie, take us through how the critics look at this. Julie, why don't you get started with our source? Well, Lyric, let me ask you a question. What do you mean by Jewish law? Do you just mean the Ten Commandments that Moses got? What do you mean by that? Okay, that's a good question, because the Jewish law is much more than those Ten Commandments, and what we're going to find out is those are the core of the moral law. But the Jewish law had ceremonies and sacrifices and judgments and cleanliness. All of those other things are part of the Jewish law. And so it's a, it's a very big subject to look at with a lot of different aspects. Yeah, there's over like 600 different rules, 613. Right? 613? Yep. Okay. Well, so we, we wanted to go ahead and see what some of the critics are saying. And these are Christian critics uh, from the website JesusWordsOnly.com. Let me, let me read what they're saying here. Uh, Jesus's view on the law. Jesus emphasized the validity of the law up through the passing away of heaven and earth, thus confirming its inspiration and ongoing validity. Now they get that idea of this heaven and earth from Matthew 5, 17 to 19. And if Jonathan, you could read that, we can talk about that a little. Sure. Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Okay, so there's something there about Jesus not abolishing the law, but fulfilling the law. So it's logical that we try to say, okay, what does that mean to fulfill the law? And Rick, this is a really long definition. Yeah, well, and the reason it's long, Jonathan, is because that word does have a lot of different shades of meaning. So we wanted to just kind of put it all on the table. All right, to make replete literally to cram a net, level up a hollow, 
or figuratively to furnishing, to furnish or imbued, diffuse, influence, satisfy, execute an office, finish, a period of or task, verify or coincide with a prediction. Okay, so, you know, what we're looking at is when you say fulfill the law, most of the time in Scripture when it says fulfill, it really does mean to satisfy or to make replete, to to fill up, to finish off. So keep that in mind as we move through this. Okay, so remember, he's saying Jesus said this validity of the law was until the passing of heaven and earth. That's how long the law is going to last. Now, I'm going to step out of that quote for a second and speak as me. You know, Jonathan read from the New American Standard, which said, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until it's all accomplished. I'm more familiar with it in the King James Version when it says, not one jot or one tittle shall pass. And this has to do with these tiny pen strokes in written Hebrew. A jot is related to our modern English word iota. Like, you know how we say not one iota, meaning a small amount? Mm -hmm. And a tittle is even smaller. So we get a really good idea of the emphasis Jesus places here. In other words, 100% of the law is in play, and it cannot be changed until something happens. All right, so now we're back quoting from that website that is against Paul. So the website says, quote, They say, compare that Luke 16, 17 similarly records Jesus saying at a different time than the Sermon of the Mount. So Luke 16, 17, this is going to back up what Jesus just said previously. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one stroke of a letter of the law to fail. And that one stroke of a letter is that tittle, that really tiny, you know, tiny stroke in written Hebrew. So it's the same analogy. All right, that Jesus says, their quote continues now. They say this, thus, Jesus could never be accused of seducing any Christian from following the law. Jesus cannot be a false prophet under Deuteronomy 13.5, which says, But the prophet or the dreamer of dreams shall be put to death because he has counseled rebellion against the Lord your God who brought you from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery to seduce you from the way in which the Lord your God commanded you to walk. So you shall purge the evil from among you. Okay, so anybody who's going to seduce you away from that that is going to be evil. So here's what they say in this article. Jesus said the law remained valid until heavens and earth pass away. But in Romans 10:4 it says for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness for everyone who believes. And Paul is blunt that the law ceased for anyone who follows Jesus in Ephesians, Colossians, 2 Corinthians, Romans, he gives all, they give all these scriptures that we'll put in the CQ Rewind show notes, where Paul is saying the law is abolished, it's done away with, it's nailed to a tree, it faded away, it was only ordained by angels who are no gods. So Jesus says, apparently, the law is here forever. Paul says the law ended with Jesus. Doesn't this conflict? Well, it sure sounds like it does when you look at it that way. And, and that's why we're talking about it here and now. What we want to do is we want to put this whole thing together and look at actually how those two varied statements work together. And it's kind of fascinating if you're willing to look at how the scriptures actually blend in with one another. So that's, that's where we're going with this. So here's the thing. The distance between what Jesus and Paul taught does not seem small. It actually seems like a massive ravine. 
How did Jesus go about verifying the law and how could Paul seemingly just throw it all away? We're rolling out new series content this year. Multiple episodes on one topic over consecutive weeks, such as what do we do when the Bible seems to contradict itself? Go to ChristianQuestions.com and search for Bible Contradictions to see the full series of episodes and stay tuned for more new episodes and more new series releases at ChristianQuestions.com. The first and most important foundation details are these. Now, these are, these are important now. Jesus was a Jew and was bound to follow the law. Being the perfect man that he was, he not only followed it, but was a shining example of how to follow it. Paul was also a Jew and a serious supporter of the law. Both had the same heritage. And that's an important place for us to start, because when you, the, the idea of both having the same heritage, saying, okay, they started out, I'm not going to say on equal ground, because Jesus is not equal with anybody, but they started out in the same place, born as Jews, raised as Jews, and becoming very, very definitely faithful to what they understood as the Jewish law. So with that in mind, you've got a, a similar beginning. Let's go to a soundbite. Um, and this is from Jesus Rebukes and Rejects Paul. Now, okay, the title already makes my stomach turn a little bit because it's very contrary to what we believe, but we want to listen to this. His name is Hugh Whitmore, and, and you know, I've listened to a lot of, of what he says, and he's very sincere, very sincere in his belief. Let's listen to his reasoning on Jesus rebuking and rejecting Paul. He's dropping in to Revelation where the, um, the, in, in Revelation chapter 2, we're speaking about the church of Ephesus from Revelation chapter 2. Staying in Revelation chapter 2, now we're on to verse 4. Jesus again says to the church, But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent, and do the works you did at first. The first works... The works at first Jesus is referring to were the kingdom teachings of Jesus that were replaced by the false testimony of Paul. Because, as you know, I call myself a church without Paul. And I hope more people follow that. And I hope there are plenty of churches without Paul. But there was a church without Paul at one time in history. And that was when Jesus was here on the earth and teaching. There was Jesus and his kingdom teachings. Paul hadn't written anything yet, and Jesus was the only thing you needed to know to get to heaven, to understand what God needed from us, and, and from God and through Jesus to get to heaven. Okay, so Jonathan, you made it really clear that you had a lot to say about this. <laughs> I, I really do. Um, let, let's start off. Okay, this is talking about Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 to 7. Now, if the church is called Ephesus— and the Apostle Paul established it, doesn't that give you a clue for Jesus's love towards Paul? You know, the seven churches covers a span of the entire Christian age, uh, is what we believe. Here in Ephesus is the first time period, and we believe it covers the life and death of the apostles. Ephesus means desirable. The candlesticks in Revelation picture the pure message of the apostles. But by this warning in Revelation, 
ambitious leaders swept in after the apostles were gone to uh, gain control and power over Christianity. And that's what the word Nicolodian, uh, Nicolations uh, represents in verse 6. And that word means lording over the people. So Jesus taught us the leaders are the congregations, the servants. So this is the opposite. People are lording over the congregations. So corruption has begun. Okay, so what you're saying is Paul was the original founder of the church in Ephesus, and therefore, we're saying, going back to what you knew originally, you're going back to, guess who? The Apostle Paul. <laughs> it's Paul. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, and, and just one other quick, quick, quick side point before we continue, because we don't want to get hung up on this, but he says, you know, Jesus is all you needed to know. And yet Jesus says to the apostles when he's ascending, wait in Jerusalem because the Holy Spirit is going to tell you what to do. It's going to unfold things. It's going to help you see things. So Jesus himself is saying there's much more to come. So just, just a point on that. Okay. So where do we go? Back to me. Go, wait. Wait. What? What? Wait. <laughs> I want to come back to that statement we had in the last segment made by that anti-Paul view. Remember he said Jesus said the law remained valid until heavens and earth pass away. Mm-hmm. But that's not what our jot and tittle text of Matthew 5, 17 and 18 actually said. Remember, it said, I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill right. until heaven and earth passes away. Not the smallest jot or tittle shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. So once it's accomplished, the law is fulfilled. Even the smallest pen stroke of the prophets would have to be accomplished. I looked this up in the New Living Translation, and it says, until heaven and earth disappear, not even the smallest detail of God's law will disappear until its purpose is achieved. So my question is, how did Jesus actually fulfill the law? Because that's that's when this is going to come to an end. And that, my friend, is the key question that we will be looking at. So good question on that. And we're going to proceed with this premise that Jesus' actions and teaching did fulfill the law, and Paul, the Apostle Paul, verified the results of those actions and teachings. Okay, um, So what we want to do is look at this clearly. We've already seen Jesus say that he will fulfill the law. That was Matthew 5, 17. You just mentioned that. We we read that in the first segment. Here is Paul's understanding of Matthew 5, 17, Jesus fulfilling the law. So this is the Apostle Paul's take on what Jesus says. Galatians 3, 23 to 26. But before faith came, we were kept in custody or guarded under the law but shut up to the faith which was later to be revealed. Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor, for you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. Now, this is interesting. In Thayer's Greek-English lexicon of the New Testament, it says the law has become, you know, the, the part about a law has become our tutor. You know, tutor, or as King James calls it, the schoolmaster, it doesn't mean someone who helps you with your homework. It means a guardian or guide of boys. And among the Greeks and Romans, the name was applied to trustworthy slaves who were charged with the duty of supervising the life and morals of boys belonging to the upper class. The boys were not allowed to so much as step out of the house without them before they arrived at the age of manhood. So applying that, the way Paul is saying that, the law kept watch over us 
until we came to Christ. Calling the law a tutor or schoolmaster shows that the use of it was temporary because, you know, children at some point, they're done going to school, but it's something to bring you to Christ. So, you know, in studying this law, I just wanted to figure out what might be the purpose of the law. Why did God give that to the nation of Israel? What did it accomplish? And I was thinking about this, that from a, a physical standpoint, giving them this law really set them apart from other nations. It showed that God had extreme concern and interest in the Jewish people. It elevated them. And this law was meant to bring blessings to them. What else does the law do? Well, well, the first thing I think about is the law describes sin. And now that you've been taught of sin in the law, sin has major consequences if or when you go there. Uh, so at least God is giving his people direction, right and wrong. So there's no question as to what's right and wrong anymore. And it shows us what needs, you know, what does righteousness mean? And the law provided them discipline. It, it required them to do several different kinds of things and live in a very specific way. And the discipline was so that they could understand that they were a different people. So you said separate them, but it separated them not only uh, be, because of the way the rituals were, but because of the discipline that was required. That's another part of what the law brought to them. You know, I think it also gave them health benefits because they were given certain diet and hygiene rules that you know were way, way ahead of its time. And, you know, now we see that they, you know, could prevent the spread of communicable diseases and things that raged on through the pagan nations around them. What else? Well, um, it also provides the ability to recognize the Messiah, which had no sin and kept the law perfectly. So, you know, recognition of the Messiah is, is an important thing. And another thing the law does is it identifies exactly what sin is. So it does a lot of different things. We, we always think about the law, okay, so it's just to keep them in order. No, 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 no. It's to show them a way of life that is going to bring them someplace. And I think that the law also, the way I see it is it put them into relationship, covenant relationship with God. Um, so it was it was used for this specific time period to hold God's favor uh, through works and sacrifices, really until the promised seed came, and then it opened God's favor to all men. But this is this is the method by which God kept His chosen nation a separate chosen nation. But but I think the biggest thing is what Jonathan said that it showed them like this schoolmaster, it led them to Christ. If they would have done everything they would have lived forever because the law could give life, but nobody could keep up with it. Nobody, nobody, you know, so only Jesus could. Well, that meant he was the Messiah. Okay, so we see that the law did a lot of different things. And so when you, you say Jesus fulfilled the law or and Paul throws the law out, however you want to phrase it, there's a lot to talk about here. So really the question is, so can Paul be right? Okay, you know, about we're at Christ, we don't need the law anymore. So if he is right, then how does the law remain? Because, you know, Jesus said the law remains, and yet is it left behind? So let's get back, Julie, let's get back to the, the contradictory perspective on that. Well, actually, I've got a quote from Albert Barnes, and this is notes on the whole Bible. Oh, gotcha. And this might, I think, give us the answer. So Albert Barnes says, the laws of the Jews are commonly divided into moral, ceremonial, and judicial. 
So the moral laws are such as grow out of the nature of things, which cannot therefore be changed, such as the duty of loving God and his creatures. These cannot be abolished as it can never be made right to hate God or to hate our fellow men. And I really think that this is the key here. Splitting the law into three categories breaks open this whole topic. We've got moral, ceremonial, and judicial. So we've got different parts of the law. And he gives one example we just heard that, you know, you you have to love God. That law is going to stay in force until forever. Um, but what are some examples of the ceremonial and the judicial law? And where does eating shrimp come in? <laughs> do you like shrimp? Uh, yeah, I do. Okay, well, so that comes under the ceremonial law. See, the ceremonial law had to do with two basic things. It had to do with cleanliness and it had to do with sacrifices. It was being clean in what you ate and how you handled yourself and atoning for sins on a regular basis. The judicial law was basically an example of so-and-so did wrong and there needs to be a consequence. And the judicial law was how was that carried out? So you've got the moral law, which is really how you act, your behavior, the cleanliness and sacrifices of the ceremonial law, and the judgments of the judicial portion. So with that, let's read that scripture. You alluded to it, Julie, about, you know, you, li- you, you uh, abide by the law and you live. Leviticus 18, 4 and 5. You are to perform my judgments and keep my statutes, to live in accord with them. I am the Lord your God. You shall keep my statutes and my judgments by which a man may live if he does them. I am the Lord. Okay, remember that phrase. You keep my statutes and judgments and you will live. And God says that to us. So the law was presented as a clear path to being recognized by God and a clear path to life. Fast forward to Jesus' time. We, we drop into his ministry, and we are in, we're in Luke, going to be in Luke 10, 26 to 29, and, and there's a lot more to this story, so let me just set it up a little bit. A lawyer uh, is attempting to trap Jesus about eternal life. He wants to trap Jesus in his own words. This lawyer thinks he's really smart. They, he the lawyer, and Jesus end up both drawing attention to the moral law. So listen carefully to this part of this conversation between them, and listen to how they both zero in on the moral law. Okay, Jonathan, Luke 10, 26 to 29. And he said to him, what is written in the law? How does it read to you? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. He said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But wishing to justify himself, he said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? So Jesus answers, you did well. Do this and you will live. Why did Jesus say that? Because that's what Leviticus 18.5 said. So he's saying the moral law is something that, that you have to, your part is to live according to this. This is interesting. So now, now the lawyer just thinks he's smart and says, okay, well then who's my neighbor? Jesus proceeds with the parable of the Good Samaritan. We won't take the time to go through the parable, but here's the conclusion after he uses that parable. Remember, Samaritans were not clean, acceptable people, and yet the Samaritan in this parable was the hero. So Luke 10, 36 and 37. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the robber's hands? And he said, the one who showed mercy toward him. Then Jesus said to him, Go and do the same. So Jesus verified the moral law, and he praised a Samaritan as well. Now look, in those times, you didn't praise Samaritans. They were like, uh, keep them away from us. 
So Jesus is, is stepping beyond, and he's lifting the morality of the law actually to a higher height. So he is looking at it and challenging this Pharisee, this lawyer, this ex- expert on the law. You know, you should be more like that Samaritan. And, you know, that's really kind of an interesting point for, for Jesus to be bringing up. So he's verifying the moral law. That's the key. Jesus is saying, it's right, it's good, this is a good thing. The Apostle Paul verifies Jesus' words and actions, as well as verifying the Old Testament moral law as well. For those who say, well, Paul throws it out, I wonder what you do with Romans 13, 8 through 10. Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another, for he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. For this, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And if there is any other commandment, it is summed up in this saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. That sounds just like Jesus. Well, Romans is written by Paul, so this is Paul saying this, right? Right, right. So He's it, confirming. Jesus. He's not throwing out anything. He's... He's, he's saying, this is what you need to do. Right. Love, love is the fulfillment of the law. And, and Paul is writing to a Christian audience. So he is absolutely supporting the moral part of the law. He's quoting from it, and he's also quoting the way Jesus quoted from it. So he's not only going back to the Old Testament, but he's doing it the way Jesus did. So there is a great, great cohesion between their teachings. Jesus has upheld the moral law, and yet he gives a new commandment and a higher standard. Near the end of his ministry, here's what comes into play, John 13, 34, and 35. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. So that commandment is still in force. Um, and to quote from episode 1084, uh, about almost about a year ago, you did a program called Does the Old Testament Apply to Me? I'm going to quote from there. You said, when we look at any aspect of this moral law, we always see the same thing. Jesus upholds and enhances all of it. So if I'm going to put this into my own words, of that law covenant, all those laws plus the Ten Commandments, the moral part of it is going to remain forever. And just a quick note, CQ Kids video, we do have one called, Who Was the Good Samaritan? So, <laughs> All right, so a lot of other materials to, to back up what we're talking about, because we really, while we're going deeply into a few things, we really are just barely touching on a lot of this. So Jonathan, as we sum up this segment and looking at the moral law, what, what is it that we are learning from the law? The Jewish law was the basis for all of what Jesus and Paul taught. It's a pretty simple equation. The Jewish law was the basis for both of them, not just one. So, we have a seeming basis for agreement as Paul is going as far as to echo what Jesus himself taught. The moral aspects of the law are arguably the easiest to balance. What about the ceremonies? If you love our podcast, show us some love on social media. Search for our handle at CQ Bible Podcast, or just search for Christian Questions on Instagram, Pinterest, Facebook, and Twitter. Now back to our discussion. Jesus' new commandment was to lead his followers to the next phase of Jesus fulfilling the law. In this next phase, he would show us that the sacrifices of the law were to foreshadow him. 
Now, the interesting thing is that Jesus hardly said anything on this, but he lived and died that message. And that message, again, was that the sacrifices of the law were foreshadowing him. So, Julie, let's go back to uh, Albert Barnes in terms of just kind of pulling, pulling into perspective some of the aspects of the ceremonial law. Okay, the ceremonial laws are such as are appointed to meet certain states of society or to regulate the religious rites and ceremonies of a people. These can be changed when circumstances are changed, and yet the moral law be untouched. The ceremonial law was fulfilled by the coming of Christ. The shadow was lost in the substance and ceased to be binding. The moral law, though, like we said before, was confirmed and unchanged. So we're only talking about the ceremonial law. Can you give me a quick example of what he means by the shadow was lost in the substance? Okay, so the shadow, when you think about the the, the way this is described, uh, at, at, at one point in a scripture, and it's somewhere in, in our outline, oh, we'll get to it, it talks about the law being a shadow of things to come. When you follow a shadow, you see the edge of the shadow, you follow it, you eventually get to the real thing. And that's what happened with the law. It was a shadow and when you got to the real thing, you know what it was named? Jesus. <laughs> because he fulfilled the law. And, and that is what we're going to see now. Jesus' words. Let's look at Jesus' words. Now, pay close attention to what they mean, because he's speaking of how he fulfills the law, but most of us, when we read this scripture, we don't, we don't make this connection. This is, this is important. Matthew 20, 28. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve— and to give his life a ransom for many. Okay, give his life a ransom for many. What does that word ransom mean? Well, it means something to loose with that is a redemption price, figuratively atonement. Okay, so Matthew twenty twenty eight. we just read it. Just as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom. But you said this is Jesus talking about how he fulfills the law. I don't hear the word law anywhere in that. And in fact, I went back and I read all of Matthew 20, and the whole chapter doesn't say anything about the law. So what? What am I talking about? What are you talking about? <laughs> well, you got to think about it. He says he gave himself a, his life as a ransom. Okay? The word ransom means a redemption price. And when you think about the law and you think about the sacrifices, they were to atone for the people's sins. So Jesus is drawing the conclusion that he was the atoning, the corresponding, the correct price for people's sins. We're going to develop that a little further. As so going back to, that's, a, that's the shadow. The yes. shadow was the sacrifice of the animals that let people have a relationship with God. Jesus, his sacrifice was that. Right, and, and, and we're going to get into Hebrews 10 in a couple of minutes, and that's going to nail this thing down. So, and this, this, this is actually exciting when you see how Jesus fulfills this portion of the ceremonial law. So we talked about Jesus very, very quietly almost mentioning it. Now, the Apostle Paul agrees how Jesus fulfills the law. He further points out that this is what he was called to preach. So the Apostle Paul is going to essentially echo Jesus' words in 1 Timothy 2, 5-7. to For there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle, and I am telling the truth. I am not lying as a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. 
so now in, in his letter to Timothy says that Jesus gave himself as a ransom. This word is slightly different than the word Jesus used for ransom, Jonathan. So what's the definition here? It means a redemption price. Yeah, but say it in, in Greek. Anti-lutron. <laughs> and Jesus, before he called himself a lutron, the, the, the ransom, the ransom, the lutron was given. That's right. But uh, it's interesting. Um, the word anti, uh, it, this, this word is actually taken from two different Greek words. Anti means instead of or because of, and the lutron we already uh, learned about uh, is a redemptive price. And so when they're put together, it, it really means it is a corresponding price. So again, you have this clarity. Now again, it doesn't mention the law, does it? It doesn't say anything about, well, you know, that takes care of everything else. Just be patient. We're going to get there and make the connection. But what we have are the seeds of crystal clear evidence. So with those seeds of crystal clear evidence, let's go to another soundbite from Hugh Whitmore, Jesus Rebukes and Rejects. Paul. So a little bit of a different perspective here, a, a lot of a different perspective here. And Jesus here in Revelation 2 verse 4 is telling people to get back to that, to the love you had at first, the love for Jesus. Repent and do the works you did at first. Paul comes along and he introduces this crazy thing that there's something physically called grace, almost like magic dust that gets you to heaven, that gets you saved and to heaven. It's just not true. Everything Jesus said leaned towards what God said, which is that to get to heaven and to bring back the, the kingdom, it's by your efforts and by your works. Jonathan, go ahead. I, I have more to say uh, yeah. on this. You could, uh, folks, if you could see the look in his eye. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> now, I know he's trying, and... Uh, to, to know the truth and to find it, and uh, it's admirable. But, you know, let's look at where what he's reading from in Revelation uh, chapter 2. Let me just read verses 1 through 3. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write. It's like Jesus established, I mean, Paul established uh, of Ephesus, the church of Ephesus. Dear Paul, and this is Jesus speaking, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand and the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands says this, so Jesus is ready to give his message. Here it comes. I know your deeds. I'm going to throw in Paul and your toil and perseverance that you cannot endure evil men. And you put to the test those who call themselves apostles and they are not. And you found them to be false. And you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary. So Jesus is commending Paul for his diligence. Remember what Paul wrote in Philippians 3.18? It sounds really similar. For many walk of whom I often told you, and now I tell you even weeping, that there are enemies of the cross of Christ. Paul fought to keep the gospel pure. Now in Revelation 2, 4 through 6, he continues, and it, it kind of changes here. But I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first and do the deeds uh, or else I am coming to you and will remove you and the lampstand out of its place unless you repent. So now Jesus, his thoughts here are directed to the church that are without the apostles. Time has moved on and now this new leadership has come in and they're not preaching Jesus first. 
And so the church is forgetting what they learned from Paul and Peter and James and John, that Jesus' sacrifice by God's grace, let me use his word, um, by God's grace, guarantees life for all, some in heaven, most on the earth, in God's kingdom. Now, Hugh Whitmore doesn't believe in the kingdom Jesus taught on earth as it is in heaven. For if he understand that division, he'd realize that God's grace, Jesus' sacrifice, covers it all. Now that's a mouthful. And really, the bottom line, folks, is what we want to do is establish scriptural understanding by establishing the bigger context. And this is a pet peeve of mine. You all know that. Context is my favorite word when studying scripture because we want to keep it clear. So let's get—thanks, Jonathan, for all, all of that and sure. the, the, the research that went behind putting that in, in order. Let's look at Hebrews chapter 10, okay? Hebrews clearly shows Jesus' sacrifice as a fulfillment of the ceremonial law. Let me say it again. Hebrews clearly shows Jesus' sacrifice as a fulfillment of the ceremonial law. Hebrews 10, let's go 4 to 7, and then uh, verse 9. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Okay, pause right there. See, with this plain fact in, in place, the basis for Jesus coming is obvious. Sin needs to be eradicated, okay, because it's impossible for the sacrifices to actually completely do what they're supposed to. They would just buy time. So, Jonathan, now verses 5 through 7 and then part of verse 9. Okay, well— that's the last time you're going to interrupt me on this scripture, Rick. For 21 years, you've been interrupting me while I'm reading. But guess what? I'm, I'm turning the tables. I'm going to interrupt myself when I read this. How about okay, that? this I'm waiting for. Oh, okay, you go, here brother, we go. You go. <laughs> Therefore, when he comes into the world, he says, sacrifice and burnt offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. Now, Paul is quoting, I'm interrupting myself, uh, in Psalms chapter 40, verse 6, he's reading it right from the Psalms. And then he continues, In whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you have taken no pleasure. Again, that's continuing in Psalms 40, verse 6. Then I said, Behold, I have come in the scroll of the book it is written of me to do your will, O God. Now Paul is quoting Psalm 40, verse 7. And then in verse 9, he says, he takes away the first in order to establish the second. See, there's the key. He takes away the first. When it says Jesus fulfilled the law, he made it so that part wasn't necessary for followers of Christ anymore. He takes away the first to establish the second. So we're given a clear command that the sacrificial part of the ceremonies of the law is no longer there. It doesn't apply anymore because scripturally Jesus told us in a very quiet way, but in a very big way by action, by actually, Jonathan, the sacrifice was literally on the cross. Yes, it was. He literally sacrificed his life for us. That is what's established, and that's why the sacrificial law goes away. The clarity of this statement is our foundation. His sacrifice replaces all previous sacrifices. So in other words, the shadow isn't necessary anymore because now we have the real thing. Exactly. And, you know, this law, the law was meant to give life. God wants life for his creation, but it couldn't give life because nobody could keep all of it. 
right? So I think that this contrast is very striking here in these scriptures that Jonathan read. These sacrifices that were in the Jewish tabernacle and later the temple, they had to be repeated year after year in order to keep the people in good standing with God. But it made me think of Hebrews 9.28 that says, so Christ was offered to be, offered once, excuse me, offered once to bear the sins of many. So one sacrifice did it all. It never needed to be repeated. He died once for all. You don't need to keep doing this animal thing year after year after year to have a relationship with God. We can have it through Jesus. So, you know, important, important scriptures in Hebrews. Now, the critics say, well, I mean, we believe the Apostle Paul wrote Hebrews. So they say, well, you know, it's all, it's all Paul and you know all about him. So let's take a look at the other, a couple of other examples of this exact same thought in Scripture. Jesus accomplished what the law could not. That, Julie, that's what you just finished saying. John the Baptist introduced Jesus exactly that way. John 1, 29. The next day he saw Jesus coming to him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The Lamb of God. Why did he call him the Lamb of God? because he's the fulfillment of the Passover lamb. So John the Baptist, even before Jesus says one word, one word, John says, here is the replacement for the sacrifices of the law, because he takes away the sins of the world. He's telling us that what the law couldn't do, Jesus is going to do just watch. So that's before Jesus starts. After Jesus finishes, then we go to the Apostle John, who verifies and deepens what John the Baptist, Jesus, and Paul all have said in 1 John 2.2. And he himself is the propitiation or atonement for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. You can't get more plain than that. He's the satisfaction, the atonement. The word propitiation means atonement, and when you think about atonement, you think of the Jewish sacrifices. So John, the Apostle John is saying, Jesus is the end of sacrifice because he did it for ours and for the sins of the whole world. Back to Hebrews 10.1, and Julie, this is where that shadow thing comes into play uh, in the words of the Apostle Paul. For the law, since it has only a shadow of good things to come and not the very form of things, can never be the same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year, make perfect those who draw near. The law couldn't do it. It could buy them time until the next time, and buy them time until the next time. But once the shadow brings you to the real thing, Jesus died once for all, and that is the end of that. Jesus fulfilled this portion of the ceremonial law completely, so it was no longer needed. So Jonathan, learning from the law, let's wrap this up. The ceremonial law is here shown to be a shadow that brings all to Jesus. That's what we need to take away with this part of our conversation. This aspect of the law's fulfillment fully replaces the atonement sacrifices because Jesus settled that score. Is it enough to focus on the ransom sacrifice of Jesus as proof that parts of the law were fulfilled? Our team of volunteers are accomplishing amazing work every week as we release new audio, video, and web content, helping create the Christian Questions Multimedia Ministry. There's several ways you can get more involved in our not-for-profit mission. Click on Support CQ in our main menu on ChristianQuestions.com.
As Christians, we all agree that Jesus' sacrifice atoned for our sins. It would be therefore incomprehensible to be following the ceremonial law, which covered the sins of the people, but did not permanently remove the sins of the people. Nevertheless, let's look at other fulfilling proofs. So we've talked about the ceremonial part in, in relation to sacrifices. We're now going to look at the other part of the ceremonial law, which is some of the cleansings and so forth. So we're going to get into that in, in just a minute. But just one quick point before we go to a soundbite. Um, you know, for those people, here, this is important, for those who disagree with the Apostle Paul and say, well, you know what, he doesn't belong, Jesus, you know, the law is supposed to abide as it is forever and ever and ever. The question you ask them is, did Jesus die for your sins? Yes, and, and the answer would be yes. It would be an, an unequivocal yes. Therefore, that part of the law no longer is in existence. Jesus fulfilled it. You've just answered, you've just answered your own contradictory statement because that's what we all believe as Christians. So let's take it for what it really is. One more quote from Hugh uh, Whitmore um, from uh, Jesus Rebukes and Rejects Paul. Those who worship the devil worship death. They worship confusion, injury, and death, but mainly death. And that is what Paul worships. And that is what Paul is doing by sapping away the energy that God needs from us through our worship, by tearing people away from the, from the kingdom teachings of Jesus. And it's Paul and his teachings that have kept Jesus from coming back for these 2,000 years. And we need to get back to the kingdom teachings of Jesus Forget Paul and, and worship openly the, the strict teachings of Jesus. And over time, this will embolden the church, empower the church. Worship energy will go to heaven. God will overcome Satan. The kingdom will come back. Wow. Um, <laughs> <Okay>. <clears throat> sincere. I hear, I hear passion and misguided. A little bit like Saul of Tarsus. Yeah, you're right. A little ironic. Yeah, you know, that is. you know, and, and the interesting thing, just a very, very quick point before we move forward, is, you know, they're always talking about, Jesus talked about the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is like the kingdom of God. When you analyze what Jesus was saying, he's talking about the development of the true church. What was Paul's entire ministry about? The development Developing of the, the true, true church. church. Yes. So when they say Paul didn't follow through, he exactly followed what Jesus was saying. Anyway, literally like 24 seven. Yes. Paul, Paul lived this. Yes. This is all Paul talked about. Yes. Yes, absolutely. All right. Trish has, has arrived with a question, comment, or I don't know what else it could be. But. <laughs> <laughs> well, first of all, that soundbite leaves me speechless. Oh my gosh. Oh, anyway, I just wanted you to see if you could throw this into the mix. I'm just curious about the woman at the well, uh, when Jesus was talking to the Samaritan woman. Mm -hmm. She says um, they worshipped in the mountain, they, the Jews worshipped at Jerusalem, and he says, um, but the hour is coming as now when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for such the Father seeks to worship him. In that conversation, I found it really interesting, he never says to the Samaritan that she had to become Jewish. Right. She doesn't have to follow the law. I mean, you'd think that would be in there because he spends two days with them. So I just wanted to know if there, you had any perspective on that one. You know, I think that that is a really a really good scripture because what that shows us is Jesus isn't saying, "Well, come to Jerusalem and you know and 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 
ceremonially wash yourself. He's saying the day is coming when you worship in spirit and in truth. And the point is, it's not going to matter where you are. That's what he's saying. So he's showing them that the way the law was actually working, Trish, and that's an excellent, excellent scripture, he's showing the, the way the law was working is not going to be in effect for Christianity outside of its moral value, which never goes away. Thanks for that. So let's move forward now. You know, enough about Paul, okay? Paul did not start the problem, okay? You know who started the problem? Jesus did. And you know who contributed to the problem? <laughs> what? Peter did. Okay. <laughs> because Jesus talked about being the fulfillment of the law, meaning when I've done what I've done, these parts don't need to be in place anymore. He's the one who started that. But Peter takes the other part of the ceremonial law and puts it in order. We all are familiar with the account of the, the vision that Peter gets uh, with, uh, before going to see Cornelius with the sheet that comes down from heaven. We want to touch on that. Because this is enormous, and this is long before the Apostle Paul says one word. Acts 10, 10 to 16. But Peter became hungry and was desiring to eat. But while they were making preparations, he fell into a trance. And he saw the sky opened and an object like a great sheet coming down, lowered by four corners to the ground. And there were in it all kinds of four-footed animals and crawling creatures of the earth and birds of the air. A voice from a voice came up, uh, I'm sorry, a voice came to him, get up, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything unholy and unclean. Again, a voice came to him a second time. What God has cleansed no longer consider unholy. This happened three times and immediately the object was taken up into the sky. So he has this vision. He's told to eat that which has always been unclean. And Peter's like, I can't do that. And it happens three times. And the voice came and he said, what God has cleansed no longer consider unholy. So now Peter's reaction is, you know, I'm not doing this because I've never eaten anything unholy or unclean. So, Jonathan, those are two specific words that are somewhat similar but have a very important difference. Yes, the word unholy means common, literally shared by all or several. And in the Greek-English lexicon, they, they mention by the Jews, unhallowed, profane, Levitically unclean. And the second word is unclean. And that means impure, ceremonial, morally, or specifically demonic. And the Greek-English lexicon says, in a ceremonial sense, that which must be abstained from according to the Levitical law. So you've got a slight difference in the two. The first word has the main meaning of that which is common. That's kind of everywhere. And the other one really more leans toward the idea of ceremonially not acceptable. And Peter is, is looking at these things and saying, I have never partaken of anything that is common or that is unclean, ceremonially unacceptable. Now, remember, up to this point, and this is really important, every single Christian was Jewish. Okay? Up to this point, there was not a single convert to Christianity outside of Judaism. So when you think about that, they would have never had any reason to change their diet because that's what they were all used to. And they're just kind of going along and, and eating that which God has proclaimed as clean. This happens, and it changes everything because 
the makeup of Christianity was about to change. So Peter would broadly define what this vision meant. He would now live practical application of it as he enters the home of Cornelius, who is a Gentile. Okay, this wasn't supposed to happen if you were a Jew. Peter would proclaim a new standard of recognizing those who have all always been unclean. So we jump down to Acts chapter 10, same story further down when he, he's talking at the house of Cornelius, Acts 10, 27 to 29. And as he talked with them, he entered and found many people assembled. And he said to them, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a man who is a Jew to associate with a foreigner or to visit him. And yet God has shown me that I should not call any man unholy or unclean. That is why I came without even raising any objection when I was sent. So I asked for what reason you have sent for me. So what Peter is saying is he's taking what the vision said to eat that which is unclean and it's okay because God made it holy. And he's now furthering the application and he walks into this Gentile home and says, God has shown me that a man can, who, who may have previously been looked at as unholy and unclean isn't necessarily that way. So he's saying this is a big, big difference. Now remember, every Christian up to this point was a Jew. They would have needed evidence to change the heritage of their eating habits. Why would they need to change their eating habits? Because Christians would pop up around the world from completely different cultures, and the message was, look, what they're eating is okay. They're Christians, they're called to Christ, they're given God's Spirit, and that's the most important thing. So Peter sees them all receive the Spirit, okay? And now unequivocally knows that things have changed. You can't get bigger proof than them being given God's Spirit. <laughs> this is... It's shocking yeah. to Peter, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it, you can't argue this point. So now we go to Acts, jump down a little further, Acts 10, 34 and 35. Opening his mouth, Peter said, I most certainly understand now that God is not one to show partiality, but in every nation, the man who fears him and does what is right is welcome to him. That's a powerful statement from one who would have never entered the house of a Gentile before this. He enters, he observes, he has the background of the vision, and he realizes the call of Christ now has the potential to go worldwide. But what rules did Peter give to them because they were Gentiles because of this? Well, he certainly didn't tell them to watch what they ate. Okay. What about circumcision? He didn't tell them to get circumcised. What about ceremonies they had to attend? He didn't tell them to follow those either. Did they have to keep kosher? He didn't tell them they had to keep kosher. See, the point is, he said, you're in Christ just like me. And what you come from and what I come from is now no longer relevant because we are both the same. That took this part, that, that, that ritualistic cleansing, cleaning part of watching what you eat and said, no more, does not have to apply because that's not what Christianity is about. It's so, just faith in God through Jesus. Yes. That's the bottom line. It is. And so for those who say, you know, you, you know Paul really messed it up, you really should blame Peter. <laughs> and then when you go to blame Peter, you really should blame God himself because... 
the voice this says is, this is not going in a good place right but that's the point the voice says what god has cleansed no longer consider unholy so jonathan learning from the law what do we how do we wrap this up there is no evidence of any early church ceremonial practices based on the law paul is completely in line with jesus john the baptist john and peter Okay, Paul's in line. Now, when we say there's no evidence of any early church ceremonial practices, that's really focusing on the sacrificial part. Peter nailed down the unclean food part very clearly in an unmistakable vision and an unmistakable conversion of the first Gentile Christian. So the evidence is strong and shows us that Jesus fulfilled the law and didn't devalue it. So are we missing anything? Jesus fulfilled different parts of the law in different ways. What about the administration of justice? What's up, everybody? It's your CQ voiceover guy, reminding you we also want to talk to you before and after the podcast. Send us a message at ChristianQuestions.com for any and all feedback, or message us on our social media channels. Have a topic idea or just questions about what we're talking about? Reach out at ChristianQuestions.com. We've looked at the moral law and seen both Jesus and Paul standing firm for it. We've examined the ceremonial law and seen how Jesus himself fulfilled it and how Paul and Peter stood behind his sacrifice. And incidentally, how every other Christian who says Jesus died for their sins stands behind that as well. All that's left is to understand how Jesus dealt with the law's judicial aspects. And remember, Albert Barnes, uh, we started, Julie, with him saying, okay, the Jews looked at their law as, as in three basic categories. We've covered the first two. Let's go back to Barnes for an explanation on that third part. Okay, a third species of the law was the judicial, or those regulating courts of justice contained in the Old Testament. These were of the nature of the ceremonial law, and they might also be changed at pleasure. The judicial law regulated the courts of justice of the Jews. It was adapted to their own civil society. When the form of the Jewish polity was changed, this was, of course, no longer binding. So if I was going to put this in my own words, because Jesus fulfilled the ceremonial part of the law, the judicial portion would follow suit because we've got the sacrifice of Christ and then years later, you know, the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed in AD 70. So the entire ceremonial and sacrificial system attached to it came to an end. It's obsolete. You don't have these temple rituals anymore. You know, and, and that's interesting that you brought that up because you, you're right, the temple's destroyed. And, and so all of those things are gone. And you think, okay, well, then why didn't God just do that originally? He allowed the Jewish and Gentile Christians to have to work through their differences. And there were many years before the destruction of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple that they had debates and, and, and disagreements and trying to work their, their, their issues out between them. That was a character development time. It was a necessary time to say, you come from different backgrounds. It's okay, because your commonality is Jesus not the law, and not your Gentile background. And you're to love one another as I love you. That new commandment. In despite of your differences and backgrounds. Right, exactly. So you can see how Jesus really does nail down and fulfill the law and put so many things away 
because they no longer apply because he is the fulfillment. He's the embodiment of the morality of the law. He is what the sacrifices of the law were about. So now what about the judicial part? Let's go through judgment in relation to Jesus. This is kind of fascinating. Daily judgments are to be carefully monitored, okay? Jesus says that, and interestingly, so does the Apostle Paul. Jonathan, uh, Matthew 7, 1. Do not judge so that you will not be judged. Very simple statement, okay? Be careful how you judge one another. Romans 14, 13. Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather determine this, not to put an obstacle or stumbling block in a brother's way. So, is the Apostle Paul disagreeing with Jesus, or is he agreeing and saying, this, this is pretty good stuff? That first one, Matthew, that was Jesus talking, and right. in Romans, it was Paul talking, and they sound, he sounds like he's saying the same thing. Don't judge each other. Stop it. He is saying the same thing. These folks that say, well, you know, you know, at every turn, Paul disagreed with Jesus. Look at, this, look at the scriptures we've talked about up to this point. Focus on the scriptures we're going through in terms of simple aspects of judgment. Let's go to another aspect. Jesus is plain that the personal judgment he's focused on is future, and we will see when we get to a scripture from Paul, that he actually agrees. So Jesus, in these next scriptures, is talking about the most important judgment being that in the future, where the law was like, you got to be judged right here, right now. John 5, 28 and 29, Jonathan. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which all who are in their tombs will hear his voice and will come forth, those who did the good deeds to the resurrection of life, and those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. Okay, so you've got uh, Jesus speaking very plainly that there's going to come a time when all who are in their graves will hear my voice and there will be judgment. There will be a time of reckoning and a time of reconciliation to follow. He also, not in Jesus' words, but in Jesus' time, you get a sense of that future judgment in Matthew 8, 29. And this is, this, this is actually evil spirits— talking to Jesus. And they cried out, saying, What business do you have with each other, Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? So it's interesting that when you think, when you see what's happening in the, that verse, they know there's a future time of judgment. So when you take the judicial part of the law, Jesus is saying that judgment really comes later. And we've got to be really self-accountable, accountable accountable to God through Christ, and accountable to one another, but it's not on a national basis anymore. It's much more individual, and the great judgment is in the future. Now, the Apostle Paul, let's see what he says about judgment. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 5. Therefore, do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts. And then each man's praise will come to him from God. So, is the Apostle Paul talking about a future judgment too? He is indeed. He's agreeing with Jesus. Oh no, what do you do? Look, folks, there is this incredible harmony between Paul and Jesus. And when these folks say that they're at odds, they're not looking at the bigger picture. They're, 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 they're trying to nitpick statements and take them out of the context. Paul, Julie, you said it before, Paul was 24-7 Jesus. 
And there's nothing he did that wasn't to support his master's example and teaching. So now let's, let's go to another example of judgment. This next scripture is right after the Pharisees criticized Jesus' disciples for eating with unwashed hands. Another little ceremonial thing going on there, okay? And it's interesting, Jesus allowed his followers to eat with unwashed hands. It was a little ceremonial thing, but he said, you know what? That's not the big issue. So again, you you see Jesus fulfilling the law in a very, very kind of quiet way there. Jesus explains that we're largely responsible uh, of causing offense ourselves, not because our hands are dirty. Mark 7, 15. There is nothing outside the man which can defile him if it goes into him. But the things which proceed out of the man are what defile the man. So he's saying if you eat with dirty hands, it's, it's not going to make or break you. What makes or breaks you is the things that you say and the things that you do. Isn't that profound? It's profound, and it just shows you how he's fulfilling the law. He's saying, this is a higher standard. You don't understand this. So the question is, what does Paul say about that kind of thing? Romans fourteen fourteen. I know and am convinced in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but to him who thinks anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. So the Apostle Paul is kind of agreeing with Jesus again, isn't he? He is. Shame on him. <laughs> Not really. You know what I mean no. by that, right? Sure. The point is that there is, these, these two are not at odds. Julie? You look like no, it just you know here he's he's saying the same thing this he's he he took that part of the law that Jesus elevated and he's saying look gentiles this is what the messiah said and and it is bigger than that law that's out there it is it's something that that's just again it's profound it's it's what the man is that what's that's what makes him unclean the kind of man he is. So, so the Apostle Paul, again, is verifying the teaching of Jesus, not contradicting right. it. And, and I think at the end of this verse, to anyone that thinks something is unclean, to him it is unclean, think about it. He's focusing on the Gentiles, and you know he knows the Jewish traditions and things. So as Gentiles, and we come across a, a Jewish, Jewish convert, if he doesn't want to eat something, it's okay. Let him keep to his conscience. Don't judge him. Don't, don't put him down. If that's what he needs to do, let him do it. But you do what you feel is right. And, and, you know, and that really supports what Peter brought forth for the body of Christ. It gives us all the ability to, to make those choices, uh, like you said, according to our conscience, and to be able to expand Christianity without the limitations. Because here's the other thing. The Jewish law was a physical, earthly law. The call to Christ is a spiritual call. It's about being spiritually minded, not fulfilling physical requirements. It's another reason that Jesus fulfilled it. One more, one more example here. Jesus and Paul both show nations who've already been judged will have an opportunity for salvation later. And this can, comes as a shock to, to a lot of Christians. But look, here's what Jesus says, Matthew eleven twenty four. Nevertheless, I say to you that it'll be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you, Capernaum. So Jesus is saying to them, Sodom, who was destroyed for gross wickedness, has a better opportunity 
in the day of judgment than Capernaum. Because they didn't accept him and they saw miracles right right there. They were right there. They witnessed it and they walked away in disbelief. So you have Jesus giving Sodom an opportunity in the future, even though they were destroyed. Now, why it, can Jesus do that? Of course he can. That's why he died. That's why he nailed all sins to the cross and fulfilled that ceremonial part of the law. Interestingly, the Apostle Paul also talks about a nation that had already been judged, that has other opportunity in the future. Romans eleven fifteen to 16. For if their rejection is the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? If the first piece of dough is holy, the lump is also. And if the root is holy, the branches are too. He's talking about Israel. Jesus cast Israel off. Your house is left unto you desolate. Paul is saying that that casting off, according to prophecy, and Paul didn't make this up, folks, according to prophecy, Israel is going to be regathered and become a, the, 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 the focus of God's earthly kingdom. So both of them agree in future judgment. Isn't that amazing? They agree. The Apostle Paul actually stands up for what Jesus says on every single thing that's important. To me, that's no surprise. To some others, they may be wondering. Okay? So let's sum up with the Apostle Paul. Let's sum up what he taught regarding the law based on what Jesus taught regarding the law. So Paul is now really reflecting, now that we've seen all this, he's reflecting Jesus' own teachings on the law in Galatians 3, 21 and 22. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? May it never be. For if a law had been given which was able to impart life, then righteousness would indeed have been based on law. But the scripture has shut up everyone under sin, so that the promise by faith in Christ Jesus might be given to those who believe. Okay, so that gives us a sense that, that Paul is telling us that the law was there for a purpose to draw us to Christ, and that it's all part of God's really amazing, big, big plan for the world of mankind. Julie, final thoughts? Um, so uh, in the bonus material, we're going to have also additional scriptures that show the unity between what Jesus taught and what Paul taught. Um, and um, so moral, ceremonial, and judicial, right? So right. moral stays, ceremonial goes, judicial goes. And um, I guess, I, I, would you like a closing statement from me? <laughs> yeah, actually, just but just one quick thought before that. And remember that what Jesus did with the moral law, and we didn't even get into this, he actually enhanced it. He made it even higher than the law required. That's right. So you've got him building it up higher, but he was the ceremonial part, and he brought the new judicial part because it was all about a spiritual call. So, Julie, yeah, wrap up the the, the four-part uh, series that we've done on contradictions. Well, I, I just wanted to thank you both for inviting me to participate on this series. I, I learned a great deal. And I feel better equipped to address those who misunderstand Paul. But we pray that we've been able to build up the faith of those who might be shaken by some of the allegations charged against him, because they're pretty serious. 
And I'll be back in two weeks with a special guest on the topic of how to avoid burnout. And I already feel a little less stressed, but I'm going to take a break next week. <laughs> See you in two. All right. All right, Julie, thanks. Thanks so much. And, and Jonathan, just let's wrap this up. Learning from the law, how do we put this in perspective for this segment? The Apostle Paul was a meticulous student of the teachings of Jesus. Paul's perspective on the Jewish law was sharpened by what Jesus did and what he said. So we look at this, and what we realize is really simple. The Apostle Paul was an absolute footstep follower of every the life of Jesus Christ. He lived for Christ. He died for Christ. He taught for Christ. He preached for Christ. He ministered for Christ. And he built up for Christ. Let the case be stated that the Apostle Paul was a faithful, faithful steward of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Folks, we hope you've enjoyed being with us today. It's an important subject that we've been talking about for several weeks, the ability to understand these, these supposed contradictions and put them in order. So, does the Apostle Paul contradict Jesus? Heavens no. Think about it. Listen, folks, we really do want to hear from you. Give us your feedback or send us your questions on this episode and other episodes at ChristianQuestions.com. Also, a big part of spreading the word about our program is subscribing to Christian Questions and iTunes or Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts, Stitcher, whatever your favorite podcast channel is. Please rate us and review us. We greatly appreciate it. Coming up next week, we'll talk about, this is a tough one, I don't think my spouse loves me anymore. What now? That's a hard one. Talk to you next week.